In the Northeast, what I heard was that a lot of people who still work the farms, they enjoy a little smoky, smoky. I won't ask you to incriminate yourself. That was just part oh, no, of the well, culture. I mean, what else is there to do? <laughs> <laughs> I, I stayed on a farm, actually. And it's the guy who would, he would have a, like a old school, like corn cob pipe, but he'd stuff it full of weed and just be on his tractor just with his corn cob pipe of weed. We're transitioning towards a, a more lax or lenient marijuana law in Iowa. I'm, I'm actually one of the only uh, medical marijuana patients in the state. There's only a couple thousand of us. Interesting. How receptive do you think leadership is to, to those initiatives? I, I don't think that while Governor Kim Reynolds is in office that we will see cannabis legalized, even if it made it through the state house and the state Senate. I, I do think that she would veto any kind of legislation that it would drastically ease, ease restrictions on marijuana. She's been very open and, and blunt about that. I mean, it's no uh... pun intended. I, there still is a stigma with social conservatives, I guess. In New Hampshire, when I was there, which was the most conservative state in New England, they were sandwiched between Maine and Massachusetts. You go to dispensaries in those places, and that's people who I knew that's what they did. But I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of skeptical in a way about, I mean, I mean, it should be legal and people shouldn't be, it shouldn't be criminalized. There shouldn't be a stigma around it. But Lately, I feel with marijuana, and it seems like CBD is also taken off everywhere lately. Every strip mall in this country, it's CBD this and CBD that, and I don't know. I wonder if we've reached this stage of capitalism again, where it's like there's kind of mass like indulgence in these like substances. Like the early like 20th century, where people were all drinking Coca-Cola with actual cocaine. I don't know. We didn't bring David on the show to talk about a... This isn't like Joe Rogan. We're going to put you on that. Like, <laughs> no, yeah, we're going to structure this shit up. Right? You ever done DMT, man? <laughs> Amazing, man. Not DMT, but I've been around. I've been around. Uh, I've been around. <laughs> Welcome to Pod Me Us, examining the crisis of neoliberal capitalism from a socialist perspective as we transition towards a podcast-based economy. How are you, David? You are in the northwest of Iowa right now? Uh, northeast of Iowa. I'm working in the northwest, but I live in northeast Iowa, born and raised, born between two cornfields, and I uh, just kind of stayed here. Okay. You're a farmer, actually, in addition to being an activist. Yeah, that's right. I'm actually one of the youngest farmers in the country. Iowa, for example, right now, 60% of our farmland is owned by people 65 and older. 35% is owned by people 75 and older. And less than 2% is owned by people younger than 35 and I'm 26. Those are staggering figures. Very scary figures. A lot of my activism is derived from the impending crises that we're facing with farmland management and stewardship because we have a generation of farmers who control our food supply who are ebbing out of the industry. And you've got these older farmers who they're too old to farm themselves anymore, but their kids are gone. They've gone off to be epidemiologists or construction workers, gone into other occupations, teachers, and they're never coming back to the farm. So you've got this older person with this farmland that has to keep generating revenue to pay off existing debt. And they end up putting the land into revocable trust agreements controlled by multinational corporations. Wow. There's like a whole world of stuff here I have to look into for myself. That sounds crazy. Yeah, it's, we got about 15 years left. We got about 15 years before uh, things get really bad. 
So it's basically agribusiness that's, I mean, okay, so farmers are, are putting their interest into these trusts. And so what happens when they, when they pass away? Who, who ends up controlling the farm? So once they pass away, the land ownership does transfer to their kin. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these folks don't come back to farm the land in Iowa because it's not a sustainable form of income anymore. It's a very hard life. So yeah. a lot of these young folks will just renew the revocable trust. And a revocable trust essentially is taking the land and you still own the land. So this older gentleman that puts in a revocable trust will still own it, but they give the control and land stewardship rights over to a multinational corporation or a conglomerate to farm, and then they'll get an annual cash payout. A lot of the times when the farmer passes away, that land transitions to the younger generation, they just renew the revocable trust. So I think it's over, I think it's 40 or 44% of land in Iowa is owned or is in the name of people that have never lived here before. Oh, well, that's interesting. It's, um, I, I, I knew a, a family that farmed in the Northeast and up there, they did still have some of these family farms. But yeah, I mean, it is a tough life these days from what I gathered. And I mean, even more so lately with COVID, just kind of throwing everything up into the air. Were you as uh, were you as enthralled by the inauguration as all of us were, David? Um, there, there's so I don't use the word hate very often, um, <laughs> but uh, I did work for him briefly with the North Carolina Democratic Party. I my main intention was to go down there and salt, which we successfully did. I'm a union organizer first and foremost with the industrial workers of the world. But we went to North Carolina, myself and a couple of comrades to get a job and unionized the first Democratic state party during the presidential election cycle in United States history. We succeeded. I quit the day after he went on his second tirade about how he beat the socialists and tried to compare Senator Sanders to other socialist leaders in a in a, a negative tone, such as Fidel Castro and, and saying that he's fought against the Castros and the Putins of the world his whole life and he beat the socialist. And after that, I, I couldn't, with good conscience, work for Joe Biden. We all have to do some things for cash occasionally we're not proud of, but I think that's kind of the challenge of organizing and doing political work in the United States. But I like to think hopefully we kind of engage enough people and we raise enough consciousness about certain things that, you know, that we do some good in these roles. Oh wait, but that being said, did you see the inauguration? No, I did not watch the inauguration. I was outside splitting wood instead. That's much more important to me than watching mm -hmm. the inauguration. I think that Senator Sanders had about the same attitude about it. But no, I, I was outside <laughs> splitting wood during the inauguration. I, I had no interest in that. That's a good call. We felt compelled to mock it, so. I mean, otherwise. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I think it's kind of uh, indicative of where people are at that, I mean, there's all this pomp and circumstance around the inauguration, you're trying to stoke this kind of optimistic tone and kind of rekindle people's faith in the Democrats and in America itself, all this talk about unity. And but as far as the internet was concerned, it's like, hey, there's Bernie in a parka, that guy's kind of cool. He's the one who wanted to give us health care and everything. Like these, these Democrats would kill 
for I think the kind of memes that just come naturally out of just people's like basic respect for someone who they sense actually wants to help them. And to get that kind of uh, notoriety, all they have to do is, I mean, believe shit that's going to help working class people. I mean, it's not rocket science. Joe Manchin, if he would stop going out there and saying how much he hates American people and saying that, oh, they don't need $2,000 stimulus checks. Maybe if he stood up for, for working class folks, you, you would think that it's complicated, but it's really not. I don't think so. I mean, it's you got to love it. It's a lot of people's first memory of the Biden presidency is going to be expecting to get that $2,000 check and then seeing that it's just 1400 And now it's I guess it's being delayed until March is the latest. So. That's horrible. I mean, that yeah, when I read that, I, I, I was pretty taken aback. I mean, it showed to me that they're just still on a level where this measure is something that's valuable in that it's something symbolic they can do to placate a certain segment of their base rather than something serious that needs to happen because people are in serious material strife. No, you're absolutely right. And a lot of these measures that uh, Joe Biden touted in the campaign, the primary campaign, which were moderate at best, if not right-leaning. He's already rolling back his promises on those. I think it was uh, a day or two days before the inauguration, his website updated its COVID-19 response policy that initially included plans to expand access to Medicaid to all Americans, make sure everyone was covered for at least the duration of the pandemic. And now he's taken away that entirely in his new plan. There will be no Medicaid expansion in the United States. I mean, it's very clear why, because if the government helped people in this way, it would beg the question as to why this isn't just how things work. They're really dead set on keeping people's expectations way low. What is your folks' stance on the uh, the hashtag force the vote campaign that was recently defeated by centrists and liberals alike? We kind of had a little discussion about that on the show. I think the Bidens and the Democratic establishment, they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle and get people's expectations back in check after Bernie has raised people's expectations with talk of Medicare for all and everything else. And So I I think our job is to continue to really demonstrate like a distinction between the left and the Democratic Party at large. And I think that's something the force the vote thing like could have done. I feel like it was a missed opportunity to have not at least gotten more. These people aren't our friends. Well, it's like you and me have been talking about, John, clarity, right? And not fall for the hemming and hawing of people who are against it, explaining away in kinder terms, why they're against it. What were your thoughts, uh, David? I did do some organizing around Force the Vote, some digital strategy organizing, some deep canvassing, relational organizing, making calls for it, trying to get members of the DSA to pressure their leadership to get behind it. It seems like the larger body of the DSA was in support of it, but everywhere that we went, we always found a roadblock and it was always folks that, whether it's their position or place, put themselves at a higher standard than a lot of grassroots organizers. They're not grassroots organizers, they're grass tops organizers, these leaders of these organizations. Force the vote, it would not have cost the Democrats the speed in the House, that's a lie. We could have gotten at least on record and found out which Democrats are going to support and which Democrats are going to oppose health care 
as a human right in the middle of a fucking pandemic. I concur. I think it was a missed opportunity. And we should remember that all of these people work for us. And there seemed to be like a kind of people were saying that, oh, well, people are being too aggressive about this. They're being too rude. I mean, it's just the kind of thing we heard a lot during the primaries. But don't just push halfway and be like, see, we're getting something. Yeah, but you'd be getting more. And the more you're getting is literally live saved if you get it. So do it. When you go into negotiations, you ask for the whole damn loaf of bread and then you negotiate and settle on half. If you go in asking for half measures, you end up with crumbs and the people deserve a hell of a lot more than crumbs. But we also have to not let this agitation stagnate. We, we have to remain agitated yes. and, and pissed off about this and mobilize that into political action. When you've got folks like AOC and I still support her, I'm a little disappointed that she goes on Twitter um, doesn't answer the force the vote campaign directly, but kind of says these folks that are pushing the force the vote, they're hurting the uh, the private negotiations that we're having. I don't want private. I don't want to hear about these backroom deals that you're making. Make it all upfront and public and say, look, this is what's happening. We're trying to push for this and this is where we're getting obstruction at. I don't want any more private backroom talk from people that are supposed to be my comrades, people that are supposed to represent the progressive wing of the party. Get it out there, get it open and publicly shame folks that are going to deny these essential necessities, these essential rights to people uh, during this crisis. Here, here. I mean, you know, Obama was eight years of, you know, trying to do backroom deals. Us as organizers, I think that what is important to, to mobilize this third that is watching these politically homeless Americans. My organizing structure is three tiers, and you've probably heard it before. It's agitation, education, and organization. So we need to all find where our strengths are and identify where our weaknesses are and bring people in that can fill, the, fill in those weak gaps and just uh, keep pushing forward uh, full force. I wanted to ask you, it's, um, I think if, if you look at national polling now, it's self-proclaimed independents are actually the largest group, larger than either um, self-identified Republicans or Democrats. Do you get a sense that that's the case in Iowa? Like you say, there are a lot of politically homeless people. Oh, absolutely. When I was working for Senator Sanders, <clears throat> I was getting a little frustrated with Democrats that would step up to the plate and volunteer and organize. Young folks, folks that are in college, they would do it. But the counties that I was in charge of near the second half of the, my term in Iowa, I did not have any colleges. I did not have young folks. I had a bunch of old folks and I had farmers. I had, I had precincts and districts that didn't even have towns in them. They were quite literally just cornfields. And so what I did is against the suggestion of my bosses with the Bernie campaign, I went to Republican Central Committees. I went to the county Republican Central Committees and I framed Bernie's policies in a way that they could understand. For example, Medicare for all. The way that I explained it is to differentiate private taxes and public taxes. Well, people say, what are private taxes? Well, premiums, co-payments and deductibles are private taxes. They're monies that you have to pay to remain a healthy and productive member of society. The thing about private taxes is that you don't get to see where your money's going. That's not publicly disclosed. It's private. It's a private enterprise. So it goes to bureaucratic waste of doctors having to hire staff to negotiate with health insurance companies all day. It goes to uh, pad the pockets of the idle rich at the very top of these health insurance uh, industries. I said, what we do is we eliminate private taxes and we implement a social tax or a public tax where we do have a paper trail, we get to see the receipts. And I shit you not, I got two Republican members uh, of their board to be precinct captains for wow. Senator Sanders. Wow. 
good on you for for framing it that way. It's exactly what it is. We have to get comfortable very quickly with being uncomfortable. We have friends that might be liberals and we have to challenge them. Comfort is not always a good thing. Comfort can lead to complacency. And complacency is probably the biggest hurdle that we have to move past here now that Joe Biden is president of the United States because people are going to fall back asleep just like they did under Obama. Comfort can be bad. For example, bad relationships can be comfortable because they're familiar. But sometimes uncomfort can lead to new and great things. In my presidency, no one will be forced to stay in a relationship that is making them stagnate. <laughs> Everyone will be married to whoever they like, and the government will pay for it. Here's $27. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's our job, being on the left, is constantly fighting and struggling. That's how it has to be. But... Is there anything that you think would surprise people about Iowan politics? Anything that people don't know about Iowa? Yeah, I think that I think a socialist could win a major seat here in Iowa if they started speaking to working class folks. And I think that they could probably get uh, a large portion of conservative or libertarian or right wing voters behind it, because on both sides of the aisle, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats, I mean, it's obvious the the main source of the GDP here in Iowa is agriculture, yet neither major party tackles the very pressing issues that the agricultural industry is facing. You have uh, Republicans that say we need to keep free trade open. You've got Democrats who say we need to save the family farm. Well, what the hell is the family farm, Democrats? What real plan do you have to revitalize rural America? None of these issues are actually addressed. It's a lot of doublespeak. It's a lot of platitudes. People are sick of platitudes. People are losing their farms. People are, are coming to an age, ever-increasing age of the farmer, where they quite literally don't know what to do and no one is reaching out to them and, and providing that kind of assistance and, and support. But you know, farmers, even rich farmers, they see the negative impact on the environment that is caused by these multinational corporations that come in and start controlling the land. They don't care about polluting our waters because they don't live here. In the county just north of me, seven out of 11 of the wells are not potable, the farm wells, for, wow. for to provide people with drinking water. You can't drink it because it's so polluted. In Iowa, we're pretty good at soil retention. We're only responsible for about 5% of the soil that erodes into the Mississippi River. But because our soil is so super concentrated with these chemicals that we spray on this Monsanto corn that just cannot survive without all this extra assistance, we're responsible for 25% of the nitrogen and the phosphorus that goes into the Mississippi River, flows down to the Gulf of Mexico, contributes to the algae blooms and kills off our sea life population. So these older folks, they are not blind to that. They understand the, the environmental impacts of this because they live here, they drink this water, they eat this food, but nobody's reaching out to them for any real answers. I think if someone came with answers like Senator Sanders did, he had a fantastic rural revitalization policy it was extremely comprehensive because it was written by Iowans. And uh, I think that if someone came and spoke to the issues of working class Iowans, we could win some real progressive seats here in our government. There's probably people on the political right. There's probably self-identified Republicans who are aware of all these issues you're talking about, David, and, and could be reached if someone would actually speak to these things. 
No, absolutely. Someone just has to speak to them. I would I would go out and when I build door knocking lists, I purposefully built Republicans into my door knocking list because they're my neighbors. I got the privilege of organizing my community that I grew up in my entire life. And I would go knock Republicans doors. People would recognize me. People would know me. And they would quite literally, almost everyone, they said that they would vote for Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there was also like back in 2008, I believe, Obama apparently kind of head faked a very robust policy for farmers there. And he went from being an unknown to winning Iowa and suddenly being in the running for winning the whole thing because he went to Iowa and spoke to those issues. And I'm looking at an article right here from the Des Moines Register from 2014 called Obama Promise is Unfulfilled. Like he spoke to these issues, I think that you're talking about specifically the way federal aid is distributed and how that actually promotes more corporate farms and actually pushes out family farms, small farms even more. And he like he knew these sort of granular issues and spoke to them effectively and sort of came out of left field in Iowa and just said, okay, thank you very much for the votes and then did nothing for them afterwards. You're 100% right. And like I said, with the political homelessness, a lot of these folks in Iowa, it's deep family community ties. A lot of that is attributed just inherently to to Republican values. And so they find themselves siding with the Republican Party because it's who their parents always sided with. And the Democratic Party has become a caucus of concession. I'm a labor leftist, plain and simple. Um, Labor is my thing. Do I make mistakes sometimes when it comes around identity? Absolutely. But the thing with a lot of liberals in the Democratic Party is that they will attack you if you if, if you don't conform immediately, it's a learning curve for, for a lot of us folks. And it, it seems like that. I see the Democratic Party and those that kind of encircle that nebula as an Ouroboros, the snake that ate its tail. And that's all that we are on the left is we're, we're the snake that eats its tail. And the Democratic Party is the one that's driving that self-consumption. If we can cut the head off of that snake, I think the leftist wing of our constituents can definitely thrive. There is, I mean, I think there is definitely like a certain elitism within liberalism within the Democratic Party. And like, it's like, I don't think you're necessarily like a bad person, like if you don't know what cishet means, you know, or like if you don't necessarily like have the lingo. I mean, there are a lot of people who are just like you say, like labor Democrats. And I mean, historically, there's this legacy of populism in the Midwest. I mean, Eugene Debs was from Indiana. Populist Party came from the Midwest and Minnesota. It's, yeah, uh, Kansas. Yeah, it, you know, Minnesota, their Democratic Party is actually called the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. The Midwest literally invented the word populist. Yeah. It's remarkable. It's not like a known fact. It was people disillusioned with a co-opted Democratic Party, and they literally invented the word. And you know, it goes to show you the power of mainstream media, even back then, that they were able to kind of turn it into a cudgel and it's kind of stuck ever since it depends on who you're talking to but for some people the term populist is is like threatening and they're uneasy about it but do people still have a uh, consciousness of this legacy are there still people who kind of identify with that kind of politics yes but they're tired they're very tired they've they've been kind of browbeaten last many decades with this incrementalism and uh, kind of inaction. I think that we're, we're waiting for leaders to come in and we're the ones that we're waiting for. It's we have to keep organizing and not one person can do it all on their own. 
everyone that's got these kind of different niches in organizing, whether it's if you're an agitator or if you're an educator or if you're an organizer, we have to dig our heels in and just push forward. And it's going to be uncomfortable. We have to be okay with that. And it's going to be hard. And I think it can be done though. I really do. That that kind of sentiment is still here. It's just waiting to be harnessed. And I think Bernie was one that could have harnessed that. I think that Kimberly Graham was definitely someone that could have harnessed that. But Midwest states are ignored. Nobody pays attention to the Midwest. In the Midwest, our representatives, we have a saying, they disappear to Washington. They get elected and they disappear to Washington Mm -hmm. for 20 or 30 years. And people just elect them on familiarity. Mm -hmm. Chuck Grassley, he's a piece of shit now. You know, he was, he's the grandfather of wind energy in Iowa. A lot of people don't know that, but if more progressive funders and groups would focus more on the Midwest, we could make these wins. And that with the work that I'm doing right now, we're focusing on an economic region, not necessarily divided by districts or county lines or state lines, but an economic region in Western Iowa. We were able to get some funding there to actually organize where nobody else is organizing right now. That's the issue is that nobody's organizing here because we don't have the resources. Yeah. Well, I want to get into that, what you're doing in Iowa right now. Well, first of all, what would you say brought you to uh, left-wing politics in the first place? I mean, there's a lot of people in Iowa who I guess are just disenchanted with things or or like you say, they vote Republican because it's just the way their parents voted. What brought you to the left? Yeah. So I'm part of a working class kind of apolitical family. My father was a Republican. My mother never voted in her entire life until she voted here in 2020 for the Green Party. My entire family voted for the Green Party for their for their first time ever voting. I'm very proud of, of them. And what brought me to politics was I grew up very poor. Patches on patches was a term that we used where you'd tear a hole in your winter jacket and then you'd put a patch on it and then that patch would tear and you'd throw another patch on top of it. <laughs> but my organizing came from music. I'm a folk music musician. And I, I started dabbling into some old folk music like Pete Seeger, early Bob Dylan, some of the activist stuff. And then I discovered folks like Phil Oaks. And that led me into Utah Phillips and Joe Hill. And then I got involved with the IWW and started organizing with them. And after music presented that kind of once music put into words that I could understand the ideology that I felt in my heart, I, I found my home. And that was in organizing. So I dedicated my whole life to organizing. Got very deep into labor movements. I worked with the IBEW, the UAW, CWA, IWW, of course, to try to organize workplaces. That's really where my entry into into politics came. Is it spoke to me through music. And I think that people, we just have to learn the language to get this to reach into people's hearts. It may be music. It may be just sitting down, having a cup of coffee with a farmer and speaking to him about what he believes and giving people permission to think a different way. That's a big thing. We got to give people permission to think a different way. Yeah, it's interesting the way that I think music can be an entry point for people. People like Woody Guthrie from the heartland of America, really. Punk rock is kind of another one. I kind of got into the clash when I was in high school and but I mean, there's several different genres of music that kind of reflect this kind of left-wing politics. But what brought you to working for Bernie in 2020? Did you work for him in 2016? I volunteered in 2016. I volunteered and donated whatever cash that I could. I was all in to the extent that I was able to. When he decided to run again in 2020, I knew that I had to put everything on the line. I knew this was his last chance. And so I was a, uh, this is a little bit hard for me to say, but I was a debt collector for six years. There's not a lot of job opportunities out here. Farming is not a sustainable form of income, especially on three and a half acres. So I was a debt collector. And one thing that really bothered me is there were 
There was nobody organizing up here in Northeast Iowa, not even the Democratic Party. I would go with my friends to parades or events, the community events that were being held in towns and the Democratic Party nor the Republican Party there. No presidential uh, candidates, no state or federal can uh, Senate or House candidates were there. Nobody was going to these communities. So what some working class folks and myself decided is that we would go to these communities. So every weekend, we would get together and go to these towns of three, four, five hundred people. We'd march in their parade, and then after the parade or after the event, we would go through the crowd up the sidewalks on either side, whatever it may be, and we would get people signed up on the burn app. We would get people registered to vote. Uh, we would get, talk to people and hand out literature about Bernie. And we called ourselves the Northeast Iowa Bernie 2020 Strike Force. Our first parade that we did, we offset the population of that town by 4% because we had so many people marching in the parade for Senator Sanders. The, um, we were the only political affiliation in that town for that event. And did that for a couple of months. And then I was reached out to by uh, Jody Risper, who told me to apply. So I did apply and uh, I got hired. I was working seven counties initially. And by the end of the campaign, I was hyper-focused on two counties. I think there were a lot of people who just gave all they could to Bernie in 2016, because he was just someone they believed in. And it's people who strained themselves even financially, maybe to give to that campaign. And I think it's such a crime that, you know, these not the candidate himself, but his supporters were just smeared to the extent they were in 2016. Can you tell us a bit more about what just nuts and bolts, like what, what did organizing for seven counties, what did that entail like day to day? So it was a lot of door knocking. It was going to a lot of these small community events, organizing meetings with farmers. That's something that I tried to do regularly was meet with farmers and talk about Bernie's rural revitalization plan, because that was the hot button topic that really resonated with a lot of folks here. Phone calls, we, we did phone calls and whatnot, but in Iowa, a lot of folks, if you're calling at three, four, five o'clock in the afternoon, they're not going to answer. Why? Because they're still driving home from work. A lot of folks in Northeast Iowa, they get off of work around four or five o'clock and they have to drive an hour and a half to get home because we're so sprawled out. So uh, a lot of it was late night door knocking, seven, eight, up until about nine o'clock at night door knocking, organizing barnstorms and things to that effect. And when Bernie would come to some of these towns, that's where we got a lot of our list building is when Senator Sanders actually made an appearance in these communities. I think that one of the biggest missteps in my region in Northeast Iowa was that Bernie did not come back here enough. He was in Waterloo, Cedar Falls, Cedar Rapids area, probably a dozen times, if not more, but he came to Decorah, Iowa twice and uh, he went to Northwood, Iowa once, and that was the extent of him visiting my region. And those areas that he did visit, I was able to generate the most excitement and volunteer participation. If Bernie came, we would build a list of people that would go to see Senator Sanders, and I would be able to reach out to them and get them activated. I, I remember the results coming in. Well, it took some time <laughs> for the results to come in, but Buttigieg ended up winning a lot of those rural counties in Iowa. I mean, I guess he was the new kind of exciting thing for some people that year, but it, it sounds like that kind of, that kind of jives with what you're saying that Bernie didn't go to some of these more rural places as much as he could have. By the way, for the record, we won Iowa. Yeah. Um, Pete did not win Iowa. <laughs> Hell no. And uh, yeah, no, it's, yeah, if Bernie would have came here more, I think that we definitely would have performed better. We would have won with a larger margin. Yeah, it's, well, you were in Iowa at the time. I was up in New Hampshire and we were having our watch party, obviously, and just watching all this play out and just feeling the mood of the room just uh, gradually like 
the excitement just leave our bodies as it became clear that like it, it was just a clusterfuck and i mean and it seemed like every candidate was trying to steal the spotlight for themselves and come up and make a speech on election i can only imagine what were i mean what was what was the reaction of people in iowa when this turned out to be such a clusterfuck on on caucus night sure so i had just gotten off of uh i, I was at one of the precincts in my turf observing the caucus going on and i came out of my caucus pissed off extremely pissed off because bernie was uh one vote away from being viable to receive delegates from that from that that caucus site and uh, andrew yang's group was not viable they only had four people they would have taken us over the top and there were folks that wanted to come over to senator sanders side on the second vote but the observer that was there for andrew yang was on the phone with someone and as soon as he got off the phone he said okay by you folks showing up here you showed that andrew is is your candidate and your candidate is asking you to disperse yourselves among all of the other viable groups except for senator sanders um, that was directive that came from whoever this organizer was on the phone with. And so I got out of that caucus extremely pissed, went to the after party and the same thing. Everybody was excited. Looked like Bernie was going to win. And then one, two o'clock in the morning, we still didn't have any kind of conclusive results, which was the direct fault of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, for getting involved in our caucuses and just a lot of other clusterfuck that happened. We were going to have virtual caucuses where people could cast their, their vote online. That was nixed at the last second. It was said that the, the DNC was not going to accept that. So it transitioned to a satellite caucus, which people thought, oh, that's great. People can caucus right at their workplace. I, I told one of the first district Democratic Party organizers, I said, you show me one fucking McDonald's that's going to allow for people to caucus in their lobby and I'll eat my sock. So, you know, working class folks, the satellite caucuses in <laughs> Iowa did not benefit, but it did benefit nursing homes it, and it, it did benefit assisted living homes and people that were going to generally vote for the more conservative candidate, which would be Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris. So the DNC really made Iowa a clusterfuck. It became clear to me that like everyone involved just like was determined that Sanders was not going to get the narrative of getting a W from the Iowa caucuses. And I, I think by the time everything was counted and by the time some of those satellite caucuses were counted, it was even looking like by the New York Times' estimates that it was going to be official, Bernie would narrowly pull out a win. But by that point, of course, everyone was talking about New Hampshire. And it's, I mean, it was, we lost the narrative of having a win on caucus night and the mainstream media was very effective at attempting down narratives like, to the point where at the very least people saw it as a wash and exactly. this whole thing with the app that didn't work and everything it was okay well i guess nobody gets iowa because bernie got it nobody gets it right. the app that pete Buttigieg funded yeah, yeah that, that all these i mean yeah ex-obama types right wasn't it I'm pretty sure it's david pluff was like one of the investors in this thing and they made this app for $60,000, rolled it out with like practically no beta testing. I mean, the whole thing was fucked from the top down. And the only way to either explain it is A, it was a, a grift operation where, you know, this group shadow charged the DNC <clears throat> through the ass for making this app and spent nothing on actually making it and pocketed the difference. Or B, they wanted to uh, actually mess up Iowa in this way to prevent a, a Sanders win, which was looking probable. 
or C, both of those things. I mean, it, at any rate, what happened, right? The, the Bernie didn't get Iowa, didn't get a decisive win there. And the insiders who arranged the app that enabled that outcome made a whole bunch of money. So as far as they're concerned, win-win, right? It was set up to fail from the beginning, considering mm-hmm. the fact that a lot of the regulators of these caucuses are older people that are not as technologically adept as some of us young folks, because a lot of us young folks were working during the caucuses. We didn't even get to participate. I'm convinced that it was planned. I mean, you can't tell. I mean, they had, I think people involved with this thing, they're smart enough to know about how much time they need to test this app and how things are going to play out and how they needed to prepare. And I I think it was the plan that if, you know, Bernie was too close to winning, that they could just shit on the narrative and make it a wash, essentially. I mean, I mean it's incidentally, it's what happened in Bolivia. I mean, the election with Evo there in, in 2019, it's just you basically, you muddy the narrative from the election long enough that you turn it into a wash and you just allow your preferred narrative to, to play out. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I don't think it's necessarily the case. I can't discount the possibility of a shitty outcome being designed. But, you know, these people were also just looking to make a buck and are in an environment where everyone is doing a shitty job and making money. That's um, been the Democratic Party's MO for a while now. Just, you know. We'll let you cast the uh, tie-breaking vote here. Did they just fail to plan or did they plan to fail? They, pl- In my opinion, they planned to fail. And the reason, I mean, maybe I'm a little bit biased about that. I was one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against the DNC in 2017 after WikiLeaks released the DNC emails showing the corruption that went on behind the scenes, the fact that the powers of the DNC, the fundraising powers were, and pretty much all the operational powers were forfeited over to Secretary Clinton's campaign before the first vote was even cast in the primary. And in the court proceedings that that happened, the defense for the DNC came out and said, look, we're a, a private organization. They, they said, we can go into a, and this is paraphrasing. Yeah. They said, we can go into the back room of a restaurant with cigars and whiskey like the old days and decide who the nominee is. We're not constrained or confined to the will of our our constituents. We're not bound by any kind of federal election law. So, you know, they can fix it and it's completely legal. Amazing to be that audacious in a courtroom about how corrupt you are. Yeah, I remember that moment. That was pretty wild. I'd forgotten about it until you brought it up. (laughs) This is democracy in America. Two major parties who effectively monopolize the game, who think that they are entitled to choose who their candidates are and who we get to choose between. People shouldn't feel shame and feeling as like conspiratorial, I think, as they want about the Democratic Party. Because as you said, David, we saw from the WikiLeaks emails, like how they feel about Bernie, how they feel about this kind of burgeoning left wing movement within the party. And but what that also showed, I'm glad you bring up the WikiLeaks email because they prove what you guys are talking about. But they also prove what I'm talking about. There were so many things in the Podesta emails that were just like the logistics of grift. Like, hey, can you get my buddy a job? Hey, my friend's kid needs an internship. When you're putting people in positions of consequence in places that matter, that eventually bites the the institution in the ass because they've grifted themselves into ineffectiveness. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But 
I mean, it's like I remember in New York, it was fairly explicit. Like they had this illegal purge of the voting rolls. Maybe you remember. Oh, I was one of them. man. Yeah. Well, you weren't able to vote that that year. Um, In 2016, I could only vote in the general. I tried to vote in the primary and they told me I had switched to vote by mail, which had done no such thing. Yeah, it was determined eventually to be an illegal purge of voting rolls. They did this right before the primary between Bernie and Hillary in 2016 in New York State, because I think they did it as an insurance policy. Policy, right? Like they didn't want Bernie to rack up votes with all these young people in Brooklyn. Like that was their nightmare was that Bernie was going to turn things around there. And it's, I think people should, like I say, I think people should have no shame in being as conspiratorial and as pessimistic about the Democratic Party as they want. If it is going to really become a tool for the working class, it's going to have to be lobotomized from top to bottom. Either that or we, we will have to have another party at some point. But it, the party is so institutionally opposed to anyone who's genuinely on the left, as opposed to them taking power, I think. I mean, it sounds like you kind of feel the same way, uh, David, with everything that, that you've seen yeah, I, go down. I do. And you mentioned something earlier in the podcast about how do we go, where do we go from here? Do we push from inside? Do we push from outside? And that's something that I'm struggling with a little bit myself. I I feel like any kind of momentum or push has to come from outside the Democratic Party. It was back in maybe 1968 where Hunter S. Thompson said that the Democratic Party uses the lesser of two evils arguments to continue to get themselves elected. And then a couple of years later, he said that it is imperative that the Democratic Party implode on itself so a new true left-wing party can emerge. Something akin to the People's Party that we're seeing now. I don't know if on your podcast you've done any discussion about the People's Party or not. No, we want to talk about that soon. I mean, the instinct is understandable. And I think there's some good that can come out of that strategy. I mean, it's the party, the two party system has always been like this. I mean, they should recognize that it is what is. I mean, Lenin was writing stuff decades ago about how America, you had this two party system where you had all these effectively meaningless debates as far as a lot of the working class was concerned among these two capitalist parties. And I mean, look at what they did with FDR, with what they did to his vice president who was in line. Henry Wallace. Yeah. I mean, the Democrats have been doing this to actual leftist people within the party, I mean, for decades. And it's it's their job. People say the Democratic Party is the uh, graveyard of social movements. One thing that I will say is that in line with the lesser of two evils argument, with third parties entering the scene, because Trump's talking about starting a, a Patriots Party or whatever the hell it is, and then the Democratic Party is obviously splintering. DSA membership, IWW membership is on the rise. People's Party membership is on the rise. There are going to be some Democrats that are going to lose, and some will lose to People's Party members. Some may lose to right-wing party members. But if we look back at the Trump presidency, I'll give him credit on two things. One, he got a large population of people on both sides that otherwise wouldn't have paid attention to politics involved with politics. The second thing that I'll give him is that more socialists were elected to office under Donald Trump's presidency than under President Obama's presidency. So we might lose some races. People will say the People's Party or these socialists or these leftists cost us this election. Yeah, throw that lesser two evils argument at us. We don't give a shit anymore because we're going to be back to fight next time while you pity party yourselves. I mean, it's early 20th century. You had a socialist party under Eugene Debs that was getting upper single digits in terms of support at the presidential level. I mean, it's regardless of people's like kind of of 
thinking about, you know, about the strategy of it. I mean, I think it's something that naturally happens. People are becoming fed up. There's folks like Senator Sanders that just, he came in, he radicalized, and then he's taking a pretty large step back. You know, a lot of people were a little bit dissatisfied with the way that he exited the primary. It, it was very mm-hmm. unceremonial. The way, And I was angry about it for a while too, but it finally came to me and I thought about it after a long time. We have to grasp reality here. One day, we're going to wake up and, and you know, I pray to God it won't be for a long time, but one day we'll wake up and Senator Sanders is going to be gone. What are you going to do about it? I think that's the position that he left uh, us in when he exited the primary was, look, I'm gone. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. So what are we going to do about it? Well, I think we, for one, we shouldn't be wasting all of our lives wondering if like if the Democratic Party is going to engage with us in good faith because they're not. And it should be clear. And I think there are like organizers in the past who have organized for all their lives before they came to that realization. And so I think we need to assume that in any case, that we're going to be met with opposition from the political establishment. And we have to plan for that. And we have to be unafraid to really take these people on and effectively undermine and delegitimize these people. We'll get into what you're doing now in Iowa. What's the name of this uh, organization you're working with? Yeah, so it's a, a very new project. It's called United Today, Stronger Tomorrow. What we're doing is, like I said, we're working in an economic region that encompasses parts of western Iowa, eastern South Dakota, northeastern Nebraska, and then southwestern Minnesota. So approximately a two to 300 mile radius out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. There's a lot of meatpacking industry up in that area. And there's a lot of fabrication and industrial operations that are going on in the area. And uh, it's an economic region. It's not a, a county. It's not a state. It's not a district. We're going to where people are not. And what the work I'm doing is focused primarily around identifying the most prevalent impacts due to COVID-19 on the communities and the economy, and then organizing a coalition of people that sometimes may be working parallel on issues, but don't often intersect and work together, and then setting the agenda going forward so we don't end up in a crisis as bad as we had after the last financial collapse following 2008. So what I've been doing is I've been meeting with a lot of grassroots and grass tops organizers with the AFL-CIO, unions, religious groups, healthcare workers in these local communities, healthcare workers on reservations and First Nations, Indigenous persons, tribal lands. And what, what I'm doing is I'm convening leaders and essentially providing the resources to build a dialogue with their representatives, dialogue that isn't there right now. People don't call their senators and bother them in the Midwest. People don't write letters to their senators. People don't go to their offices and try to convene meetings. And that's what I'm doing. I'm getting those meetings set up and bridging that divide to set up that dialogue for these people. What are some of these parallel organizations that you talked about? I mean, you mentioned some of them, AFL-CIO and religious organizations. Any other organizations that people would recognize? Yeah, absolutely. So DRA, Dakotans for Rural Action, we're we're working with them. They're focusing on things like food scarcity or food security in some of these urban populations, community gardens, things to that effect. I'm also working with South Dakota Voices for Justice and South Dakota Voices for Peace, working with Nebraska Appleseed, 
Aid, working with Solidarity with Meatpacking Workers. And a lot of these folks work on, like I said, parallel issues, whether it be OSHA guidelines and regulations or whether it be expansion and rural healthcare access. But the thing is that they don't work together and they don't collectively utilize that that potential power. As, an, as a Wobbly, as an IWW member, I'm for the, the one big union concept. So my big thing is to, to bring them together and to use that kind of diverse power to fight together, realize they have more in common than, and more power together than they would separately. It's a little bit difficult because, of course, sometimes there can be a little bit of posturing. You don't want anybody to feel like anyone's stepping on anyone's toes, which is, is definitely not the objective here. It's just about kind of bringing together these people that don't talk, that don't work together. For example, the AFL-CIO presidents in those four states have never been in the same meeting together. That's something I'm working on right now is getting yeah. Cooper Carraway and Charlie Wishman and all these union presidents in the same room together to talk about this economic region. Because in the Midwest, it's populated areas and then a lot of cornfield where nobody lives. Well, why the hell would we be organizing in an area where it's just cornfield? Why would we not organize these economic regions and then let it bleed out from there? I take it a lot of this looks like kind of making phone calls now and, and connecting people with other people versus uh, in person, like canvassing, or, or is there still some of that going on? Meeting um, people in person at the door? I would love to knock doors. I am itching to knock doors. All that I do is I, I stay out on my farm and play guitar and drink vodka. So I would love to get some exercise and, and go knock <laughs> doors. But a lot of it is phone calls. A lot of it is emails. A lot of it is advertising, Facebook advertising, Google advertising. But you know, right now we've been getting flagged on a lot of our advertisements because anything that mentions healthcare expansion or COVID-19 or the handling of the vaccination programs, that gets flagged by Facebook and taken down right now due to the all of the, the hullabaloo around the election. That was a very strong tool that we we're using. But yeah, I've done some in-person actions. Our group, our project was responsible for bringing together the coalition that pushed Sioux Falls, South Dakota on passing their mask mandate. So we were able to get that passed through. We collected over 1,500 signatures in, in less than a week and a half from uh, a bunch of grass tops and grassroots folks, restaurant owners and businesses to say, this is something that we need just to take the onus of responsibility off of the shoulders of the restaurant workers and the retail workers in particular. So if someone comes in and is anti-mask, they can say, sorry, you've got to wear a mask. The government said so, instead of it being individualized policies. And those that enforce that policy individually because they believe in science, they get harassed or harangued and that puts their workers at risk. So we're trying to just kind of alleviate some of the pressure uh, of these businesses and these members of the community where the government isn't stepping up to the plate. We're empowering them to take their own power back. Do you get the sense that there's some optimism now? I mean, it's a tough time for people in a lot of ways, obviously, but it also seems like this is a time wherein a lot could happen. Do you get a sense that people who you're organizing with, people you're working with, are they keeping upbeat now? So the thing about organizing in the Midwest is because there's no organizing going on around here, we're not set on cruise. There's no traction whatsoever. We're, we're trying to push the car down a hill to get it started right now. Mm -hmm. This isn't something like organizing in New York where there's already an organizing infrastructure there and you throw $2 million into it from some grass tops donor and it just accelerates that power. We're literally trying to get the car started because 
because there's no organizing really going on here right now at all. The enthusiasm is definitely there. And I see a lot of potential in this kind of organizing, but it's going to be, it's going to be tough going. And I'm okay with that. I'm absolutely okay with that because if we can find issues like the Sioux Falls mask mandate or these controversial issues, that's what gets people involved. Things like Medicare for all, yeah, those big line issues, we'll leave those to the national organizations. But if you want to organize people in your community, identify those local issues that need reform that you can get bipartisan support on from your constituents and start pressuring because then it's going to be unmasked where that resistance is coming from in the legislature. That's interesting. Do you feel that there are any kind of up and coming candidates in Iowa that people should be paying attention to? Left wing candidates that could be running for Congress or even Senate? I ran for office this last election cycle for Soil and Water Conservation Commissioner. I, I secured over 3,600 votes. I did fairly well. I did not win, but I, I would say that I did fairly well. And going off of that momentum, I, I plan on running again and running again. I One thing I will say is when I was organizing for, for Senate, Senator Sanders, I was in the northern desert in Nevada. I was driving through and it's like 175 miles between these towns of three or four or 500 people, the old copper mining towns. And I was coming into a town called Peoche, Nevada, and I ran into a man, knocked on his door. He's a 93-year-old Marine veteran named David Morrison. And he voted for Bernie on the first, second, and third option in Nevada because that's how their caucuses work. And after talking to him, I found out that he was the son of Frank Morrison. Frank Morrison was the three-time governor of Nebraska who had lost many elections before he finally won and went on to secure that seat as a Democrat. And uh, he was telling me this story about how he and his father, Governor uh, Morrison, were invited to JFK's White House. And they walk into the Oval Office and JFK is on the phone and he gets off the phone and he stands up from the, the Resolute Desk and he picks up the shins of his pants and starts tiptoeing towards Frank. Governor Morrison and uh, David, little kid, he was a little kid at that time here. He's wondering the, the damn president's tiptoeing towards us right now. And JFK says, I don't know how you do it, Frankie boy. Winning as a Democrat in such a red, deep state, you must be good at tiptoeing through the bullshit. And uh, <laughs> as, we're, as we're sitting there, the sun's going down and up over the copper mine. There's about 15 mule deer that come up over the horizon. And we're sitting there on his porch. And all of a sudden, David lets out this crazy whistle. I've never heard a sound like this in my entire life. And all of a sudden I'm watching in awe as all these deer start galloping down towards me. He's like, up here come my deer. And I look over to my left and he's gone. And here's this freaking herd of deer that's charging down towards me, mule deer. And uh, I'm like, where the hell Dave going? Then he comes back out of the house and he's got a handful of cherry stems and uh, orange peels. And he says, here, David, feed them. And about this time, they're about 10 feet away from me. And I go to set it on the ground. And he says, no, feed them. And he holds his hands out and I hold my hands out. And one by one or two at a time, these deer come out and take a bite out of my hands. And as I'm doing this in awe, he looks at me and he says, David, he says, the difference between a liberal and a progressive especially when running for office, is that one is involved while the other is committed. For the breakfast of the day, the chicken that gave the egg was involved, but the pig that gave the bacon was committed. And uh, that's something that I'll always remember. And I, I went to go say goodbye to him to shake his hand. He gave me a hug and he didn't say goodbye. He said, enjoy the rest of your life. Is this your way of telling us that he's going to be your running mate or something? Or Because <laughs> no, I no, vote no. for this ticket, I think, I got to say. 
Oh, he's a fantastic man. I, I met quite a few interesting people in Nevada. It just seemed like a, a mystical time. It, maybe it was mystical. Maybe it was the legal weed. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, driving the deserts for three weeks in Nevada for Senator Sanders eating peanut butter sandwiches out of a cooler was one of the best times of my life. But I guess the story is that uh, if you plan on running for office, do it 100%. Be committed. It's not good enough to be involved. You got to be committed. Yeah. Well said. I mean, Things are just a shit show lately, and people are cynical all around. And I think the the fact that someone like Trump could win is evidence of that. I mean, so I think we should have no hesitancy about being proudly socialist, anti-capitalist. I think people are hungry for that kind of radical critique. Yeah, we're going on 40 years of neoliberalism, which is just hollowing out this country. And, you know, our uh, piss poor response to COVID, I think, is a pretty clear indicator of that. Yeah, I, I heard a podcaster uh, recently refer to it as like when an earthquake comes, you see which buildings are up to code, right? Mm -hmm. And what COVID exposed, it wasn't like countries oh, not up to code. We're, exactly, we're not. We're, it's not like oh well, everything was fine, but we had this crisis that messed it up. It's like no, 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 you had it backwards. Like this shit was all really shaky beforehand, and this is exposing it. There's other places who have handled this uh, pandemic so much better than us. And what we're talking about, how it was handled, I got to say, big shout out to the state of West Virginia, which has the best vaccine rollout in the country and is the only state in the union that did not farm out its vaccine rollout plan to CVS and Walgreens. And they are all the better for it. What are your thoughts on the vaccine rollout in Iowa, David? So the vaccine rollout in the Midwest in general is not great. The information campaign is just not there. We never shut down in the Midwest. One of the only COVID laws that we passed in Iowa was that you can get drinks to go now from the bar. So you can walk <laughs> in and get a Bloody Mary to go. I'm not shitting you. This was Kim Reynolds solution for keeping bars open. It wasn't providing any kind of real financial security or support. It was, you can get your beer to go. And a lot of our advertisement that we're seeing, whether it's in South Dakota or Iowa, is around, of course, they're saying mask up, but they're saying that it's a personal responsibility. They're putting the onus on to each individual. A lot of that advertising to kind of I don't know if it's make themselves feel good or absolve themselves from the guilt of everyone dying here, but that should be used for getting out information about where you can go to get your vaccine, when your vaccine will be available to you, how you will know when you qualify for that vaccine, that kind of uh, information. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but it's not being rolled out in the way that is acceptable or helpful to the majority of Midwesterners. I'm sure there's some wonks somewhere in government who are strategizing about a website where all this information will be available that will just be ignored or not known about, or it wouldn't be accessible to large majorities of people over 40. Exactly. A lot of islands don't have internet. I had to pay three grand to get internet out to my place just for them to connect a line 1100 feet from the gravel road where they just happened to be running internet. Down. Wow. A lot of folks don't have internet. And before I got that, I was out here on the farm for four years with no cell service and no internet service. Uh, it was great. Yeah, well, I could see that as uh, being welcome in some ways. But I mean, I'm sure there's some like liberal wonk somewhere who is like 
I don't know, contriving some kind of solution. Oh, we, we can have an online marketplace where people can shop for their vaccine and find the best price for their vaccine. And they can choose for all. That works for Obamacare, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, they can choose from all these plans. And it's it'll be so great for people who enjoy spending their free time comparing the finer points of different health insurance plans like I do. Buy this or you're going to get fined, right? It's a tax and you have to pay it and you'll get fined if you don't. Well, how about you just get me Medicare for all since insurance pools get cheaper as they get larger and that's the largest possible insurance pool you could have. What are we doing like futzing around help this private organization and then blaming people for not participating instead of just doing what's right by them? Folks uh, don't realize that we have more in common than they want us to acknowledge. What is it? It's 80% of Democrats support Medicare for all. More than 50, is it maybe 60% of Republicans support Medicare for all? Yeah, the polling like fluctuates a bit, but it's around those numbers. Yeah. Right. So, so I think that the one thing that we can definitely pull from this crisis is that there needs to be a new base standard for healthcare in the United States. That's something that we, we all agree on, the general populace agrees on. Why doesn't Congress agree on that? I think that's the question that we really need to start asking. Why are they not standing for the will of their constituents? Because their constituents overwhelmingly support it. Yeah. I think it becomes a form of effectively rationing, whether it's a healthcare marketplace or, I mean, whatever government service it is, applying for unemployment and, you know, the paperwork and information you have to gather and the whole process of everything. It becomes an totally. effective form of rationing because there are people who just aren't going to have the time to do it or they just, I mean, people have stressful lives as it is and you're throwing more, quote unquote, choice and more responsibility on them. People would just welcome, and the polling shows it, they would just welcome having the health care there when they need it, when they go to the doctor. You're dead on about that, John. I mean, there, there's, uh, I have to find the article and, and send you a link or something, but like Australia is quote unquote streamlining many different sort of social services, welfare state services through an online portal that is pissing everyone off, is not working as well as it should, has a lot of hoops to jump through, etc. And what I read about it was that basically this is their way of rationing it without rationing it. Like, mm -hmm. oh, we'll have this new system. Well, this new system is a piece of shit and it's way harder to use. That means less people are going to get through it. That is the actual point of it that they can't say. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, this organization you're working with, David, United the Day uh, Strong Tomorrow, they're working in a few different states. Is that right? How can people find information uh, about them if they're curious about helping put the pressure on Congress, on their local officials, having more support for people at the local level for a COVID-19 response? What would you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. So the region that I'm working, like I said, is South Dakota. Minnesota, Iowa, and Nebraska. Over in Colorado, we have an organizer, Olivia, a great organizer. She is uh, working with the AFL of Colorado to organize there. We're also working in Indiana, and we're working with uh, a number of other groups like CVH, Podunk Resistance. So to find the information on how to get involved, you'd want to go to unitedtoday.org. And go ahead and take our COVID response survey. You can take that and it'll ask you some questions to kind of help us gauge what the most prevalent impacts due to COVID-19 are in your community. Some of the major ones that we've identified so far, especially in the Midwest anyways, is mental, emotional, and physical health are some of people's largest concerns, along with childcare. Unemployment is lower on the list because we never shut down. Unemployment is a problem, but it is not the problem. So that's some information that we're learning with this, this experimenting in this project. But yeah, go to unitedtoday.org. 
www.ghostbusters.org and you can sign up to get involved. We're in a number of states and we are working on securing funding right now to open up in a couple other states. Ohio has been thrown around there. Montana has been thrown around there. Just places where this kind of organizing is just not going on. I mean, there is organizational structures there, but the kind of investment of having a dedicated organizer there is just not existent. So that's what we're trying to do is, is go out and change the places we think can be changed and do the good work. It's up to us. Like I said, we're the ones that we've been waiting for. I know a lot of people are tired after this, this election cycle. Unfortunately, as organizers, we don't get the luxury of respite. We don't get the luxury of being able to take a break. The train's rolling and we've got a lot of fighting to do and we need your help. As uh, Rosa Luxemburg said, history is the only true teacher. And it's by fighting that we learn to fight. So I, I think there are a lot of people who see themselves as having some kind of radical politics. And there's a lot to be desired from different kinds of activism establishments out there. I mean, you know, obviously grievances to be had with political structures. I mean, at all levels at this point. But, you know, I think what we got to do is take these skills that we learn where we can learn them. And then move forward from there, try to raise consciousness and try to spark within people the radical critique and the sense that things can and should be better and build from there. Absolutely. We need to not write off these young leftists that are 17, 18, 19 year olds, 15 year olds coming into the process. They are the future and cannot disregard that next generation the same way that our parents did to us. And that means joining TikTok. And that means making content <laughs> to educate these kids. A lot of them are getting into and reading theory, but they don't they, they don't have the apparatuses to learn about organizing. They don't have the connections and the, the networking to get into organizing. And that's where our job is to bridge those connections. Theory is cool, but getting your boots dirty is way cooler. Yeah. I, I think it's useful to have both. And that theory gives you a sense of confidence in what you're fighting for. The fact that other people have faced these kinds of problems before and, and thought about them and reflected on them and offered us some wisdom. Because people should have no reservations, I think, about expecting a better world, demanding it, and working for it, and not being cowed by anyone who tells you otherwise. People deserve comfortable lives and they deserve all the things that we can offer to people just by virtue of being human beings. And that's what we got to fight for. I want you to have the last word, David, or maybe I'll just edit it. So you have the last word. <laughs> oh, well, I can. How about I end it with a, a Eugene Debs quote? How's that sound? Yeah, I love it. All right. So my favorite one that I've got it written on a sticky note on my computer screen in the other room right now, but he, he said, for too long, the workers of the world have waited for some Moses to lead them out of bondage. I would not lead you out if I could, because if you could be let out, it means you could be led right back in again. I would have you realize that there is nothing that you cannot do for yourselves. I like it. Go read Eugene Debs, everyone. Read some theory, read some Marxism, and then get to work. Thanks so much for being on, dude. Yeah, no, thanks for inviting me. It was good to speak to some fellow burners again and uh, keep up the good work. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. <laughs>